0: Merry Christmas. Christmas. We don't know the exact day that Jesus was actually born, but the exact day doesn't really matter. No, the fact that we take time to recognize and to celebrate the birth of Christ is what matters, and we are doing that today in view of tomorrow. He certainly is worthy, this God who left heaven and came here to rescue undeserving sinner like us. He is worthy. And look. Those whom He have, has rescued love Him with passion and fervor. Anybody? You love Him with passion and fervor? That wasn't very passionate or fervent. <laughs> Those who understand that love Him with passion and fervor. Anybody? Amen. Right? We do. We do. So we take time to worship Him and we take time to lift Him high today. The verse that I want us to look at is a prophecy from Isaiah. One verse that tells us some great truth. Isaiah 7.14. Let's go ahead and look at that. Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. Now the context of this prophecy is Isaiah 7. And in the year 738 B.C., Ahaz, the king of Judah, is in trouble. Ahaz is in serious trouble. I mean, it looks like his kingdom is about to be destroyed, and Ahaz is scared. He's really scared. That's when Isaiah went up to him and said, hey, don't be afraid. God is with us. The battle is the Lord's, and the Lord God Almighty will protect us. And to prove that fact, God will give you a sign. Behold. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I mean, what a sign. Now just so you know, there's a bit of controversy, a lot of controversy about this verse because some say that the particular Hebrew word that's used here for virgin doesn't actually mean virgin, but it simply means a young married woman. So the critics deny the virgin birth. That said, they are wrong. Clearly, they are wrong. See, the Hebrew word here, it's used in a number of other Old Testament verses, and it always means virgin in those other passages. On top of that, when Matthew quotes this verse in the Greek, in Matthew one twenty three, Matthew uses the Greek word for virgin, so it's very clear that virgin really does mean virgin. Some say that there is indeed a near and a far application to this prophecy, which does indeed happen sometimes with prophecy where there was a general application to this prophecy for Ahaz, and then also where there are uh, is a specific application to this prophecy in Christ. That said, it seems very clear to me that Christ's virgin birth is the one true fulfillment of this prophecy. See, this prophecy would give Ahaz hope that his kingdom wouldn't perish and that God would indeed uh, be with them. And even though the fulfillment of this prophecy is still 700 years away. Hey, it's still going to happen. Judah won't be destroyed, and God is indeed watching over us. In fact, God is with us. See see how that works? Fast forward over 700 years later. Look, this guy from Nazareth named Joseph is betrothed to a young teenage girl named Mary who is about 14 years old. A Jewish betrothal could take place as early as 12 years of age for a person, And it usually lasted for about a year before the couple was actually married. A betrothal was much like an engagement today, but it was much more closely linked with marriage. For example, a betrothal was regarded as equally binding as a marriage. And a betrothed girl had the same legal position that a wife had. In fact, an actual divorce was necessary to terminate a betrothal. So, a betrothal was a very serious thing. Now, While all that was true, look, it wasn't normal for sexual relations to take place during this betrothal period. But here's the problem. Mary was pregnant. And Joseph knows that they have never had sexual relations. I mean, that is a major problem. So, here's what Joseph's going to do. I mean, he's a good guy. He's a God-fearing guy. He's a just man, as Matthew calls him, and he doesn't want to embarrass Mary, so he plans to quietly divorce her and then go his own way. Well, that's when the Lord appeared to him in a dream in Matthew chapter 1 and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Say what? (laughs) He then went on to quote our verse from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel." which is translated God with us. Again, say what? (laughs) So look, even though Joseph and Mary have never ever had sexual relations, and even though Mary has never had sexual relations with anyone, guess what? She's pregnant. Okay, what happened? Well, God did a miracle. And clearly, Mary's child that's in her womb isn't a normal child. In fact, Her child isn't a child who's going to be born of man, but he's going to be born from God, specifically God the Spirit, and her child is in fact God himself. Now look, Joseph a man and Mary a woman can't produce God. And God can't be born into this world by natural human processes. And there's no way that Jesus could have been God unless he was born of God in some miraculous way. And that's exactly what happened in the virgin birth. See, as one said, Just as at creation, the earth was formless and empty and dark, Mary's womb was an empty, barren place. And just as at creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, the Spirit of God came upon Mary. Only God can make something out of nothing. Only God can perform the miracles of creation, the incarnation, and the virgin birth. And that's exactly right. Now, why is this so important? It's important. Because it preserves the truth that Jesus really is fully God and fully man at the same time. See, he received his physical body from Mary, yes, however. His eternal holy nature was his from all eternity. Also, Joseph didn't pass on his sinful nature to Jesus because Joseph wasn't the father. And unlike any other human being who's ever been born, Jesus had no sin nature. That's important because every normal human birth produces another sinner. Any parents know that? (laughs) But our Savior had to be genuinely human and truly sinless in order to become our perfect substitute and also in order to pay our penalty of guilt before an infinite and holy God, thus the necessity of the virgin birth. See, without the virgin birth, there'd be no salvation for sinners because Jesus would just be another sinful human being. And a sinful human being can't pay the eternal and infinite wages of sin. A sinful human being can't save anyone. A sinful human being can't rescue us from sin, hell, and eternal wrath. So, the virgin birth is very important. One writer, in stating the importance of the virgin birth, said that No other fact in the Christmas story is more important than the virgin birth. The virgin birth must have happened exactly the way the scripture says. Otherwise, Christmas has no point at all. If Jesus is simply the illegitimate child of Mary's infidelity, or even if he's the child of Joseph's natural marital union with Mary, he's not God. If he's not God, then his claims are lies. If his claims are lies, then his salvation is a hoax. And if his salvation is a hoax, then we are all doomed. So yeah, (laughs) the virgin birth is crucial to our faith. Because without it, then Jesus is just a man. And if Jesus is just a man, then we're all still in our sin, and we are all heading for hell. See, this is important. The Bible clearly tells us that Mary was a virgin, and guess what? Even so... She's still having a baby. And clearly, God is up to something incredible. The second great truth to note from this verse is this. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Implication? That the child that Mary will give birth to is God. What? Yeah, yeah. Now, just to be clear, the Bible makes it very plain that we worship one God, who eternally exists in three distinct persons. That's a mystery to our human minds, yes, but it's biblical and true nonetheless. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and they are one. Just to make it more clear, Hebrews 1.8. But unto the Son He, God said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Thy kingdom. And here, God the Father called Jesus God. Colossians 2.9, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's clear. Titus 2.13 says that we're to look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Okay, so what happened? John Flavel helps us out by providing a hypothetical dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. Father, my son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them, or it will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The Son, O my Father, such is my love too and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Father, bring in all thy bills, that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand you shall require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. Father, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last mite. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Son, Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches and empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. And so he did. And look, he had to become a human being in order to do it. This is called the incarnation. And it's truly a mind-blowing doctrine. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8 through eight helps us out. You can turn there, but I'm going to read it. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, verse 5 says this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Now, here we learn a few important truths about what really happened at the incarnation. God with us, Jesus, God the Son, becoming a human being. And the first thing to note is this, as we've already seen, that Jesus is God. Look what it says. Jesus is in the form of God. What does that mean? Well, the word form in the Greek refers to the nature or to the true character of something or someone. It's who they truly are. It stresses the essence of one's nature. It's that which is absolutely unalterable, inalienable, and unchangeable. It's their essential and unchanging character as opposed to their external appearance or to their outward shape. So when Paul says that Jesus Christ was in the form of God, he's saying that Jesus is God, that Jesus is indeed one in nature, one in attributes, and one in character with God Almighty. William Barclay says it like this, the idea is that before the incarnation, before Jesus became a baby, a human being, from all eternity past, Jesus preexisted in the divine form of God, equal with God the Father in every way. By his very nature and innate being, Jesus Christ is, always has been, and will forever be fully divine, and that's absolutely correct. So Jesus was and is essentially and unalterably God. Form. It's a very clear statement about the deity of Christ. For to be in your very nature God, you have to be God. So his true nature was God before he became a man and also when he was a man. And then after he died and rose again, God always, fully and completely God. That's his nature. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 calls Jesus our great God and Savior. Jesus himself affirmed that he was God and the only way that anyone can say that scripture isn't clear that Jesus was and is God is if they don't read their Bibles. Because this doctrine is found in every corner of the scriptures that Jesus existed from all eternity as God not merely resembling God but as God in the truest sense of the word his his true nature. Look, form in verse 6 describes the true nature of Christ while appearance in verse 8 describes the outer look. So, the true nature stays the same, while the outer appearance changes. For example, the nature of any human being is his or her humanity, and that humanity never changes. On the other hand, his or her appearance is continually changing. Anybody? Hey, we aren't getting any younger. Right? So a baby, a child, a boy, a a youth, a man of middle age, an old man, always has the nature of humanity, but the outward appearance changes all the time. Well, Christ's true nature wasn't human, it was God, even though for 33 years he took on humanity, more on that in a bit. The point is clear, though. Jesus is God, and look, he was utterly selfless. Look what it says in Philippians. Jesus, being in the very form of God, very nature God, didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. Other translations put it like this. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. The word robbery or grasped originally meant a thing seized by robbery. Eventually it came to mean anything snatched, clutched, embraced, or or prized, much like how a treasure is clutched and held tightly to. Well, Christ didn't do that when it came to his equality with God the Father. Now please note again that this doesn't mean that Christ ever ceased being God. He No, no, no. It simply means that, as Dwight Edwards said, out of love for us, he released his grip on equality with the Father and began sliding down the rope of humiliation. Christ had a perfect right to hold on to what was his, but he didn't cling to his rights, but rather he let go of them with all five fingers so again christ is god he never ceased to be fully god he always was and always will be fully god however he chose to lay aside the conditions of his pre-existent state and become a man now think of that we're talking about god here he owes his existence to none he is the rock of all ages He's the infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, gracious, just, holy, unchangeable I am. He's the king of kings, the lord of lords, and the only supreme lawgiver in the universe. We're talking about God. That's who he is. And yet, look, for us, he said, I'm going to let go of all that so I can become a man and save my people from eternity in hell. So I lay it aside, and even though I'm still fully God, hey, I'm not going to grasp onto that. I'm going to veil my deity, not void my deity. I'm going to veil my deity, and I'm just going to be the king of all kings, walking around like the poorest and lowest of men so that I can save them from themselves, from their sin and all its wages. And that's exactly what he did for us. It's incredible. One said, Had he come into the world emphasizing his equality with God, the world would have been amazed but not saved, so he didn't grasp at that. But rather... He counted humanity as prize, and so He became man. That's incredible. On top of that, Jesus, it says, made Himself of no reputation. Verse 7, He made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. The Greek word for no reputation means to empty. Empty of what? Empty of His expression of deity, not His possession of deity. See, in His incarnation, God, Jesus, becoming a man... He clothed Himself with humanity. So His emptying consisted of taking on humanity and then veiling His glory for a time. So Christ voluntarily, moment by moment, submitted to human limitations apart from sin. And so Christ voluntarily did that. And the incarnation didn't change the person and attributes of Christ in His divine nature, but it added to it a completely human nature. So he gave up his rights and privileges as God, even though he's still 100% God. And again, he didn't surrender his deity, but he veiled his glory. God then became a man. Now think about that. This is mind-blowing. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 9. You think he loves you? Look at what he did for you. A.H. Strong says it like this. When Christ became incarnate, He was one person with two natures, divine and human, each in its completeness and integrity. Christ emptied Himself in order that He might fill us. What did He give up? John MacArthur tells us a few things that He gave up. One, He gave up heavenly glory for a time. In John 17, He prays to the Father in verses 4 and 5, and He says, Father, restore me to the glory I had with You before the world began. So when he took on humanity and became a man, he he gave that up for a time. He gave up that face-to-face communion with God the Father for a time. That's why he went so often to pray alone, because he loved that intimate communion with the Father that he had in heavenly glory. He also gave up the independent authority that he had as God, the second person of the Trinity. Hebrews 5.8 says that he learned obedience. That's incredible. So we see that he submitted to the will of the Father while he was here, even though he never ceased being God the Son. So he willingly limited his own divine attributes. In Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said that he didn't even know the time that the Father had in mind for the setting up of his kingdom. He said, no man knows not even the Son. So he willingly set aside some of the exercise of his divine attributes, even though he was still fully divine. We also find that in Jesus emptying himself and taking on human flesh, he laid aside his eternal riches. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says that he was rich, but for your sakes he became poor. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Also, he gave up a favorable relationship with God for a time. My God, my God, he said on the cross, why have you forsaken me? 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin for us even though he was the one who knew no sin. So God the Father punished God the Son for those of us who believe. That should, again, blow us away. This is mind-boggling. What else? He took the form of a bondservant and he came in the likeness of men. See, though the Lord Jesus was not literally a slave, he occupied a most lowly condition in life, and then he condescended to perform such acts as are appropriate only for those who are servants. God, you ready? God became a servant for us. Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he came all the way down. He emptied himself and he became a slave and he served man as one who was a slave. Talking about God here. Note that this was very real. He was a real man, not just a figment. One said, did he feel pain? Yes. Did he feel sorrow? Did he weep? Did he have strong crying and tears? Yes. Did he ever hunger? Did he thirst? Was he weary? Was he weak? Did he die? Yes. See, he took on full humanity when he came here, and the only thing he eliminated was sin, being all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. But look, even though... He didn't have a sinful nature. He definitely felt the results of the fall by becoming one of us so that he could save us. Think about this. God the Son emptied himself, he stripped himself, and he chose to become one of his creations, a man, a baby who was born in a stable. Why would God do that? Here's why. To die so we who believe could live. That's incredible. But think of what he left behind for 33 years and think of what he took on for 33 years. God Almighty, God the Son, became a baby and he submitted himself to human limitations apart from sin. He felt physical pain. We're talking about God. He got blisters and calluses. He got mocked and ridiculed. We're talking about God. He submitted himself to his parents, the parents that he created. He became a teenager. He felt hunger pains. He was homeless and he had no place to lay his head. He 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 sweated and toiled. He was like us in every way, yet without sin. We're talking about God. God became a servant for us. Everyone around him saw him as a baby, a teenager, a man. But inside his true self, his true nature, he's the Lord God Almighty. If you remember, three of the disciples got just a glimpse of his true nature on the Mount of Transfiguration, but that was just a glimpse. But while He was here, Christ veiled that. He veiled it. Why? So He could accomplish what He needed to accomplish to save us. And so, He that made men was made a man. J.I. Packer said, "...the Divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises." Needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. That's absolutely right and it's utterly incredible. Talk about love. Our God loves us incredibly, incredibly. So why did he do it? So he could die. Look what it says in, in Philippians. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's why he came. He came To live, yes, and to live a perfect life, yes, but he came to die. So he humbled himself and became a man, but he didn't just become a man, he became a poor man, right? He lived a simple life. He was born to peasants. He was homeless much of the time. One said he didn't ask for a palace. He didn't ask for a chariot. He didn't ask for servants. He didn't ask for a wardrobe. He didn't ask for golden jewelry. He didn't ask for anything. But even then, it was more than that. See, he not only became a poor man, but he went lower. Verse 8, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's incredible. So he, God the Son, came to die for sinful wretches like us. And he didn't have to do it. He volunteered. He gave it up. Why? For us to save hopeless sinners like us. See, he's the only hope for any sinner to be saved, and that's why he did what he did. Look, the Bible's very clear that sin separates us from God. Sin makes us at enmity with God. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, and we're full of sin. All of us are. Therefore, we all stand condemned for hell. Objects of wrath because of our sin, that's who we are. See, every sin deserves death in the eyes of holy God because every sin is utterly wicked and is in its perfect and spotless sight. And on our own, all we can do is pay up, pay the wages, eternal wrath. So on our own, we're all hopeless, on our own, we're all doomed. I'll pay as Jesus, God the Son, speaks up. I will pay. I'll leave heaven, leave all this, I'll leave my glory. I'll drop way low and become a man so I can become their substitute for sin. Their sacrifice, their perfect sacrifice for sin. Sin must be paid. Either they pay in hell, or else I pay for them as believers in their place on the cross. I will do it. And He's the only one who could have done it. See, since the wages of sin was death, someone had to die. Since God required a sacrifice, someone had to be sacrificed. And only Jesus, God the Son could be that perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all for every believer. So he humbled himself, and he came to die for us who believe. So he came. He lived for 33 perfect years, and then he died on that cross, and it was there on that cross that the sin of every person who would ever believe was placed onto Jesus Christ as our substitute, and God the Father then poured out all his wrath against all that sin onto Jesus so he could pour out his blessings onto those of us who believe. Hey, either you pay the wages of your own sin in hell, or else Jesus paid for it for you in your place on the cross as a believer. Oh, won't you surrender to Christ today and be saved from the wrath to come? See, Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our only hope. So he said, I'll suffer so all who believe in me can live. I'll pay the wrath that they deserve. And he did. And boy, did he ever pay as God's wrath against billions of heinous sin was poured out onto Christ on that cross so we who believe could be saved. He suffered more than we could ever think or imagine. God did that for you. So, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, the cross is always looming, right? Because that's why he came to die for sinners like us. Oh, and good news, three days later, what happened? He rose up from the dead. Proving who he was and proving the eternal victory that he won for those of us who believe on that cross. God with us. God came down. That's the best news there is. The best news in the history of the world. Eternal good news for us. Remember what happened? Joseph didn't put Mary away, right? Why? Because an angel came to him and told him not to. And you better obey that angel, According to Luke 2, it was at the time that Mary was ready to give birth that the Roman ruler of the Lamb named Caesar Augustus decided to take a census which was really all about collecting taxes. In order to do this census, every person was called to go to his hometown, to his ancestral home to register. And look, in the middle of all that was Joseph and Mary. See, both Mary and Joseph originated from the house and family of David, and so they had to travel to the south of Nazareth to Bethlehem. <coughs> about 80 miles away by foot to their ancient home of their great-great-grandfather, King David. Picture it. A poor village carpenter and a very expectant young teenage bride. Why can't this just wait just for a couple more months? Why does Mary have to go in the condition that she's in? Why? But she has to go. And that while this was hard and miserable for her, hey, sometimes God chooses to work through our hard times to bring about His eternal glory. So they leave. Poor peasants, insignificant, traveling to their hometown, humbled and probably frightened at the possibility and probability of giving birth away from home and away from nearly everyone who cared about them. Even so, they end up traveling through the mountains down to the south to Bethlehem. Well, they arrived in Bethlehem after a number of days and they had to have been incredibly tired from their journey, but look, there's no room for them at the inn. See, Bethlehem at that time, uh, in Bethlehem, the accommodations for travelers was very primitive and it consisted really of the crudest of arrangements. Typically, an inn at the time consisted of a series of stalls built on the inside of an enclosure and it opened onto a courtyard where animals were kept. It was very, very primitive. The innkeeper basically provided fodder for the animals and a fire to cook on, and that was about it, besides that stall to sleep in. But that would have been a very welcome sight for Mary and Joseph at this time, and it definitely would have been better than being out on the streets. But nothing was available because of the census, not even one of those crude stalls at the inn. So Mary and Joseph are now left to fend for themselves with no place to stay. Now, of course, on top of Mary being very pregnant, she's now ready to give birth. you imagine what Joseph and Mary were going through in that moment? The despair, the fear, the pain, the frustration. To compound the struggle, the pains of birth were now coming on strong. Perhaps Mary's water had already broken and it's now time. But despite the incredible urgency for a decent place to give birth for this young teenager who was far away from home, and despite the pressing need for a little bit of privacy at a desperate time like this, look, there's no room for them at the inn. All right, well now what? Where do we go? What do we do? Ancient tradition tells us that Jesus was born in a cave, and there are many caves around Bethlehem. We know that Jesus was placed in a manger after he was born, which is a feeding trough for animals to eat out of. So it's believed that Jesus was born in a place where barn animals were present and a cave fits. Try to picture it. No room at the inn, no place to go. The pains of childbirth, a stinking cave that was used as a barnyard, a a feeding trough for animals, Mary and Joseph's poverty, the humiliation, the helplessness, Joseph's shame of not being able to provide a decent place for Mary to give birth, the terrible conditions, the sweat, the pain, the blood, the cries, the cold, the fear, the horrors of giving birth probably all alone. And this is how God comes into the world. This is mind-boggling. I mean, this is no nice, sweet, serene nativity scene. This is wretched. So they find a place, a cold, dark place. They're all alone, and Mary gives birth. So we find that Jesus, God the Son, the God of all glory, He's born into this cold, dark world. And as he lets out his first cry, he's probably joining his father and mother as they also cry out in fear. And think about this. When usually a midwife would clean the baby up and wrap him, there was no one there to do that but Mary after just giving birth. So she wrapped him up in strips of cloth and she laid him in a manger. Talk about humble circumstances. I mean, who would have thought that the Son of God would be born into this world, not as a prince, but as a pauper? He comes into the midst uh, of poverty, obscurity, and rejection. God made himself known to humanity, and there were people who were asleep at the end. Think about that. God stooped down to become one of us, and the town of Bethlehem didn't really even know about it. The creator of heaven and earth was being born, mind blown, and the only audience was a few farm animals. Those, The one who created the mountains and the trees, the oceans and the stars, he was being born in the midst of cow manure and smelly animals, and the people around were clueless. Think about it. God came down and no one really knew. And that's how our king comes to us? Yep. One writer says it like this. Majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat divinity entering the world on the floor of a stable through the womb of a teenager and in the presence of a carpenter. He says this baby had overlooked the universe. These rags keeping him warm were once the robes of eternity. His golden throne room had been abandoned in favor of a dirty sheep pen and worshiping animals had been replaced with kind but bewildered shepherds. Worshiping angels, sorry. So God became one of us, why? So he could live a perfect life and die on a cross to save us again. Do you think he loves you? Look what he did for you. It's incredible. The story then shifts from Mary and Joseph and Jesus to a group of shepherds who were nearby, who were living out in their fields so they could keep watch over their sheep. Among jobs, the job of a shepherd was lowly. And as a whole, shepherds were considered untrustworthy. Their work made them unclean. They were insignificant, social outcasts, nobodies. That fits the narrative, doesn't it? Jesus came to the needy, the sinful, and the desperate. Anybody? (laughs) Huh. And it makes sense that when Jesus came, he would be revealed to the lowest of the low, and shepherds qualify for that. So the shepherds were out in their fields on the outskirts of Bethlehem. See, the sheep at that time would be out in the field during the day, and then at night the shepherds would pull the sheep in, and they'd put them in caves, or else they'd put them in open-air lean-tos. And together, the shepherds would watch over their sheep to protect them from thieves and from predators. So there they are, probably huddled, Try to picture them close, huddled to the fire. Maybe they're looking at the stars, listening to the night sounds, checking on their sheep, and then it happens. Boom! Just like that, it happens. And all of a sudden, according to Luke 2, the angel, this angel stands before them, and then it says that the glory of the Lord shone around them, and their first response is a normal response when seeing an angel of the Lord. What's that? Great fear, right? Literally, it says that they feared a great fear. I mean, it's a dark night, All of a sudden, the highest of all created beings is standing in the midst of the lowest of all earthly people. And when these shepherds had seen something that wasn't of this world, they then responded accordingly, fear. And look, not only did they see an angel, but they also saw the glory of God. So this amazing glory, it it pierces the darkness. And these shepherds, man, they are really scared. Light, Shekinah, glory, the terrifying and amazing Glory of God Almighty. Don't be afraid, he said, because look, I've got some incredible news to tell you. You guys listen up. I have news that's going to change your life. I have news that's going to change your soul. And this news will not only bring you great joy, but it will also bring great joy to all people, even to a church 2,000 years later in Vacaville, California. See, shepherds, this very night a Savior has been born. The Messiah, he has arrived. Your Lord and your God, the one you've been waiting for for so long, your deliverer, guess what? He's here, and, and he's not far away. And I just thought you guys would like to know that, seeing that no one else really knows about this world-changing event. Just thought you'd want to know, and you go ahead and do whatever you want to do with that information. But, but just so you know who he is, he's the one that's wrapped in swaddling claws. Lying in a manger. Can you imagine? I can just hear those shepherds talking amongst themselves. Manger. An animal's feeding trough. The Savior of the world, our Messiah. God in a feeding trough. Are you sure? The king of kings, the Lord of lords in a feeding trough. Yeah, your, your savior, your God, your deliverer, he's in a town nearby in a feeding trough. How amazing is this? Next, look, suddenly as if they weren't scared enough already after seeing one angel, look what happened in Luke 2, 13 through 14. And you can turn there if you want. I'm going to start reading in chapter, in, in verse 15 in a second. But verse 13 says this. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So now a a whole host of angels appears, a whole multitude of them, uh, uh, too many to count appears, and what are they doing? They're praising God because Christ has come. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. They're saying, give glory to God because a prince of true peace has now arrived. They're saying, give glory to God because the one who can save your lost soul, the one who brings real joy and goodwill to you, he is now here. Your hope has arrived. Your deliverer has come. Try to imagine a whole host of angels saying this together at the same time. Try to imagine seeing and hearing this multitude of angels. Notice that this is very good news. Luke 2.10 mentions good tidings of great joy. Verse 11 mentions the Savior. And verse 14 mentions peace and goodwill toward men. Talking about true good news that brings true joy to the eternal soul. The good news that the Savior is now here. The one who would deliver his people from the curse of sin, death, death. And eternal hell, the one who would bring believers the blessings of His kingdom and the glories of eternity in heaven, He's here. The one who brings eternal joy and peace and hope is here. Good news? The best news ever. Look what happens. Look how they respond in Luke 2.15. I'm going to read that, Luke 2.15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. And then spontaneously, all the shepherds had the same response. Let's go! Let's go! And boom, off they went. The passage says that they made haste, they ran, they hurried off. They didn't waste any time to go see the Lord. These shepherds certainly took to running, to searching every cave and every stall until they found a simple man, a simple, young, tired teenage bride, uh, a teenage girl, (laughs) and a little baby in a manger. What do you think Mary and Joseph were thinking as their visitors arrived and told them about their meeting with that host of angels. What do you think those shepherds were thinking the first time that they saw Jesus? Obviously, Jesus had a profound impact on these shepherds. Verse 17 mentions that they made widely known what was told them about this child, so they couldn't keep quiet about Jesus. That makes sense. I mean, how can we not go and tell others about Jesus? Verse 20 says that when the shepherds returned, that they glorified and praised God for what they had seen and heard. Again, that makes sense. Can we do any less than they did? Can we? I mean, especially this side of the cross, especially knowing what took place 33 years later on that cross, especially knowing what that baby in the manger has truly done for us. Think about that. Jesus left heaven, God the Son, left heaven to come here for undeserving sinners like us. Talk about un. Fathomable love. Think about it. Mary and Joseph are now looking at God in their feeding trough, the same God who would die on a cross to save them from wrath and to save us from wrath. Good news? Great joy? I mean, hey, because of Him we have hope. Because of Him we have a reason for joy. Because of Him we have a reason to live. Because of Him we have a reason to give glory and praise to God for His indescribable gift for desperate sinners like us. All because of God, our God who came down. So, I guess the question is, what will you render back to Him today in light of all that He's done for you? All praise to Thee, Eternal Lord, clothed in a garb of flesh and blood, choosing a manger for a throne, while worlds on worlds are Thine alone. Look what God has done for us. May we stand in awe of Him and respond accordingly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord. Oh, thank You so much for who You are and what You've done. Thank You for Christmas. Thank You for the Incarnation, for You coming here to save undeserving sinners like us. We stand in awe of you. We love you. We lift you high. We worship you. Help us, Lord. Give us a clearer, ever clearer picture of you. And may we love you with more fervor and more passion. And may we respond more accordingly today in light of who you are and what you've done. Bless us as we go out. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.